The Brood 10 podcasts made possible by support from Mount St. Joseph University School of Behavioral and Natural Sciences, cultivating an understanding and appreciation of the creative and critical nature of scientific thought. Climb higher at the Mount. Learn more at msj.edu. I'm WVXU reporter Corey Schreiber. I'm here with Dr. Gene Kritsky from Mount St. Joseph University and Cincinnati Edition host Michael Monks. Today we're going to be doing our final extravaganza, Lollapalooza, of the Brew 10 Cicada podcast. Um, all of, we want to thank all, everyone that's been tuning in uh, through wherever they get their podcasts. I, uh, I have no idea where people get their podcasts from. There's too many providers, to be honest. But um, it's been... We've just been so uh, thankful for all the support you guys have given us and all the questions you guys have been submitting. So many questions, in fact, that we're actually going to be doing a lightning round today with all of the uh, questions that we weren't able to get to you during the um, during our uh, recording sessions. And uh, remember, uh, there is a chat feature on Facebook Live, and you can submit the questions through there. So yeah, uh, let's just get started. I know that um, just for for. It's kind of interesting how like we we took ten weeks to record this, and I went into it not knowing a single thing about cicadas. And luckily, I had an expert that has more than forty years of experience with this. So, um, just like tell me, like what was um, I can I can speak for myself about my experiences doing this. Let's start with um your experiences with doing the podcast. It was a lot of fun. Uh, it was uh, a chance to sort of crystallize what was going on each week as uh, I was experiencing. I spent many, uh, many hours up in my second story deck with the cicadas, uh, hoping that they would accept me as one of their own kind. <laughs> and and uh, uh, unfortunately they didn't, but I, I learned a lot of secrets about them and it's just, everything just sort of rolling. And so we did the next episode. I had new stuff to talk mm-hmm. about. And I, I will say the only thing I share in common with, with cicadas are the red eyes. And that's just because I... I only go to bed at 4 a.m. apparently. Um, I, of course, learned throughout our recording sessions how much, you know, I, I started to appreciate cicadas and their overall effect on nature. Um, however, my colleague here um, may not share that same appreciation with me. And we uh, wanted to invite you on to tell us your little cicada experience during the Brew 10 emergence. Well, I do always appreciate it, Corey, when my colleagues here at WVXU decide to embarrass me. Yeah. And uh, I, I embarrass myself, of course, at the hands <laughs> of a cicada during the invasion. And I did write about my experience and it got a lot of attention on, on social media. Uh, and um, I am one of the people who had an accident because of cicadas. I crashed my car because of the cicadas. I drive a, to make it more ridiculous, if I can just set the scene for you, I drive a smart car, right? So the tiny little car, two-seater car, I drive a, uh, I drive a smart car. I am afraid of nature in general, and cicadas are such a strange part of nature that naturally they terrify me. I don't do well with them. I live in downtown Covington. Didn't see a whole lot of them where I was, but they were in and out. But my car had gotten quite filthy after some torrential rains we experienced over a course of several days, and I thought, I got to get this car wash. Took it out to Latonia, a little drive through car wash that I go to there, and pulled in, rolled my windows down to pay, and there's a couple of bushes where cicadas had found one tiny little green oasis in an urban area, and they were hanging out there. And I was nervous, but I was like, if I do this quickly, then I'll be fine. Paid, got into the car wash, and the thing is going, and I hear a scream. A cicada scream. (laughs) 
And I'm like, where is this coming from? I look down and it's a cicada sitting in the passenger seat like he called an Uber. <laughs> so he's screaming. I'm screaming. I'm stuck in the car wash. It's activated. What am I going to do? So I kind of just knock it away from me and it vanishes. I don't, I don't know where it went, but I'm like, I just need this car wash to be over. It ended. I pull around to the side of the car wash after the claim. It's like, well, I need to vacuum. And I'm sure, Dr. Kritzky, you know where this is going. Um, because cicadas love the sound of other cicadas. Mm-hmm. And apparently the sound of anything that might possibly sound like a cicada as well. And I turned on the vacuum machine and all of those cicadas that were on the bushes. <laughs> and frankly, every cicada within a thousand mile radius converged upon that vacuum machine all over my car, all in my car, all over me. I'm sucking them into the machine. I'm, I'm knocking them out of the car. I'm panicking. I'm a sweaty mess at this point, okay? I feel like I, I have to abandon ship. I can't even finish a vacuum. I'm throwing the carpets back inside the car. I'm like, I got to flee. Abort mission. Abort and get out of Latonia. I feel like I get them all out. I get back in the car, sweaty, drenched, glasses all fogged up, and I drive out of the, the gas station and I hear the scream again. There's one in the car with me. It, just as I realize it, it flies into my face. And I drive right up onto the sidewalk. Oh. I hit, a, hit a curb. Hubcap goes flying. Someone else was in the road. I could have hit them. Uh, they probably thought I was drunk. <laughs> and uh, it turns out I had, I had flattened my tire and I'd broken the wheel. So it cost me 300 bucks to get this fixed. Um, I did get it fixed, but this is what I wanted to say about cicadas. I was right, Dr. Kritzky, in being afraid of them. They are not peaceful. Um, they, they target the vulnerable like me. And uh, I think, frankly, uh, several of these cicadas had a death wish for me. And I am proud to say that they are all dead I still walk the earth. <laughs> yes, but it's sort of a, a shame because what would happen when you turn that vacuum on? That's clear they really <laughs> loved you at that time because males were flying in because all the males were singing and that was going to attract the females as well. Yeah. And uh, you just ignored them. It was like turning on a Marvin Gaye album and suddenly everyone was ready to get it on because that's what they're here for, right? I mean, yeah. they, they come up, it's time to mate. Uh, the brood breeds, if you will, and 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 they they make the noise. The men make their mm-hmm. noise, and so this noise was somewhat similar. Now you heard, I'm sure, a lot of reports from people who were like, "I turned on a weed eater, I turned on the lawnmower, and suddenly it was hell on earth mm-hmm. for me." As as they all converged upon me, that was my experience as well. I told you I'm a bit of a wuss. I'm afraid of these things <laughs> anyway. Didn't have to deal with them a lot, but by that point, I was so exhausted of them, and I, I know I know better now than I've ever known. People do love cicadas. And uh, I I have not reached that. What I will confess is they are beautiful. They are beautiful bugs when you get to look at one. Um, I had written up this story in a longer form and shared it on Facebook and it got a lot of attention and shares. People were laughing. It was meant to be humorous. I I took it in stride. But I had stumbled upon another local person. I, I regret that I didn't pull her name up. She wrote a beautiful piece about cicadas and the marvel of them, how interesting it is that they come out 17 years. And I read her beautiful words and I felt so small for even having shared the story that I shared. I was like, you know, let people enjoy things. Let people enjoy this marvel of nature, which they really are. Um, but I have to say every 17 years, that's enough for me. I, I, I will I will see them in 2038 or I will see them in hell, Dr. Kritzky. Well, I have bad news for you. Oh, no. There'll be Brood 14 coming in four years in eastern Cincinnati. 
But maybe if you think of the song as more like Barry White, it might make it a little better. <laughs> I'll dig up those albums, too. You guys did a great job on this podcast, oh, so congratulations for the 10 episodes you did. Uh, I loved talking about cicadas. You're a great resource for not just us, but everyone in local media, international media. Apparently, you said you had done an interview in Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very cool. So we're so grateful that you're in our community and, and able oh. to share that expertise with us. And we learned so much. And, of course, anytime we talked about cicadas on Cincinnati Edition, the phone lines just lit up. People love talking about them scared of them like me or excited about them or just generally curious about the impact or, or what they're doing. So thank you for what you shared. I'm going to let you guys Ooh, do your thing, okay. right? Unless you have more questions for me. No, I mean, I do like the, the point you brought up with all of the interaction we've had um, throughout all of this. I mean, because I remember uh, it was almost like every day um, it was like right as we started recording and started putting episodes out, every day there was some new story about Bruton cicadas, yeah. not just here in Cincinnati, but all around the world because it seemed like either everyone was um, very excited for them or very sick of them right away or everyone else was wrecking their car across the country. <laughs> well, um, there was obviously, there was that much more serious wreck on uh, mm. well, on Columbia Parkway um, that where you saw the young man, I think the Sunday police shared the video of it, how he explains it was a cicada that caused me to crash into this right. pole and he, he, he was lucky not to have been injured. I, I was, you know, my accident wasn't that serious. It did damage the car and it cost me a few hundred dollars um, but that was, you know, I didn't need to panic the way I did, you know, it, <laughs> so I, I, I do, I want to make sure I'm clear. I do take full responsibility uh, for the accident. I do try to tell the story with a little bit of humor, but I'm going to let you guys talk, uh, talk, take your questions from people who are smarter and braver than I am about this. But thanks to you for hosting the show. And, and, and Dr. Kritsky, thanks for all the time you gave our listeners and uh, what a valuable resource you are. If you want to plug something, I, I, you know, I, I know that I, I talked yesterday on the program that you've got a talk coming up at the Lloyd Library that's not mm-hmm. even about cicadas because you're not just a cicada expert. You know a lot about all kinds of bugs. Other bugs as well. Yes, I'm going to be doing a talk at the Lloyd Library on the 28th on the uh, beekeeping of ancient Egypt. The beekeeping of ancient Egypt. Now, there's a bug fun. I really don't like. It's bees, so I will not be in attendance at that. <laughs> we won't be I'm doing like, a podcast. No, no that. podcast on bees. Maybe... <laughs> Maybe in a maybe in a few years. All right, Corey, you're a talented guy. Don't get too comfortable in that chair. Though. That's my chair. <laughs> <laughs> maybe a co-host situation. We'll see how it goes. Okay. All, right. All, right. All right, thanks, guys. Thank you, Michael Mux, Thank you. everybody. Woo! Man, let's hope. Uh, Let's hope he keeps his car on the road once he leaves the station. Yes. Um, and again, I want to thank you for uh, teaching me everything you know about uh, brood ten cicadas during this time. I mean, you have over how many years experience? Forty five. Yeah, I uh, I uh, have a little over half of that, but that's just in life experience, and I still haven't learned that much. I let's just say uh, I might have missed a few bills in my day. But... I, I think you probably know more about cicadas than you want to give yourself credit for. Having done this, uh, most likely, because <laughs> it's—I mean—it's like a, a crazy amount of information that um, we, you were able to pack into just those little ten, ten episodes. Well, you remember, I'm a college professor. I'm used to talking for fifty oh, minutes. That's a good idea. <laughs> and I'm used to not talking live on, on air. I'm used to uh, editing everything to make me sound way more intelligent than I sound right now. And with that being said, I want to give you guys time on this show i uh, want to get to some of the questions one of them we have from dana from oxford two questions one did cicadas always emerge in the night i didn't see any emerging since i didn't look in the dark and her other question is i'm seeing quite a bit of tree flagging do the nymphs only hatch when the flagging drops to the ground or do they hatch from the hanging flags well the uh, the, the most of the cicadas will do be emerging as adults at night uh, you would see them 
early in the morning, still coming up and walking the trees, but that's right after sunrise. So uh, obviously they may not have been an early riser as well. The um, flagging is the result of the egg laying. And it turns out the, uh, uh, the eggs hatch in flagged branches and in unflagged branches. The flagging actually is somewhat uh, detrimental. It looks like about if they if the leaves turn brown and it breaks, so it's dangling there in the uh, in the in the tree, uh, that will probably result in about half of the eggs not hatching properly or not mm-hmm. hatching. They desiccate and dry out. Uh, so, uh, but in the other for every branch you see this brown, you're going to see more probably that are going to be green, and those will have hatch rates up to the low nineties. We also want to give a special shout out to Micah, who's seven from Indianapolis. Thank you so much for tuning in. I believe Micah may be involved in this next question here. This question comes to us from Becky Schwartz Ann. Uh, it says here, hello, my son Micah, who is a rising second grader in Indianapolis and budding scientist, has loved your podcast as we've been enjoying Brew 10 here. He asked me to sing you these questions. One, do all 17-year periodical cicadas from different broods look like Brew 10? What about the 13-year periodical cicadas? My dad grew up in Korea where they have lots of annual cicadas each year, creating similar bounds of exoskeletons, but no periodical cicadas. Why this difference? Gene. Well, let's see. Uh, the... the 17 to 13 years cicadas look very similar to each other. However, there is one species of the four species of 13 year cicadas that has a different color pattern. And uh, when when we're not sure, for example, this last year, we had cicadas emerge in North Carolina in an area which is for brood 19, uh, but it's, it was coming up during the brood 10 year. That's some brood 19 is a 13 year cicada. And if we could see, find one of, that, uh, one of the tridecims, that's a, a, a larger species of periodical cicada, but it's almost entirely orange on the underside, uh, that would tell us it's a 13-year cicada for certain. So that's the only way you can separate the two easily. You've got to be able to find that one species in a, that unique area. And um, other than that, they all look alike. Unfortunately, they don't have, uh, you know, they don't have jackets to wear that say 17 or 13, and they don't have numbers for their brood number, uh, mm. but uh, that would make it a lot easier for us. How many different broods are there? Because we only mentioned one brood that we focus on as a title, Brood 10 Podcast. Uh, how many are there? There are 15 broods of periodical skaters, 12 17-year broods, and three 13-year broods. What was, um, which one is, was the most recently discovered one? The uh, most recently discovered brood, uh, well, we found a population of brood 22 here in Southwest Ohio uh, in the year uh, 2001 is when I first came across it and ver- realized that it was a 13-year skate. I actually uh, experienced them in 1988 and followed that followed a, a paper from, uh, and I've mentioned him before, Monty Lloyd, one of the great cicada researchers of the, of the last century. And... Uh, uh, he had found cicadas emerging in uh, Mason, Kentucky in 1975, a year after Brood 14 emerged in that area. And he published a paper that cicadas emerging after 18 years, which was part of one of the hypothetical models that people had proposed. And uh, so when they emerged uh, in Falmouth, Kentucky, uh, and then parts of Alexandria and uh, northern and, and uh, extreme northern Kentucky, I also found them in uh, Brown and Claremont County, I uh, thought it was another example of that same phenomenon. It wasn't until 13 years later when they came out, that they weren't, there wasn't a cicada emerging the year before to realize they weren't 18 year cicadas. And Mm. uh, it's, uh, I don't think, I don't claim to be a mathematical genius, but I quickly realized that uh, uh, 2001 from 19, it was 13 years. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I had uh, visited some of my research sites and realized that indeed that's where they, they came out at the same place where they did in 1988. 
And uh, that required me to go back into the the annals of history to find out where the cicadas had been in the past and found that they were here in 23 and 36. Nobody reported anything in 49. Uh, but I also verified they were here in 62 and they had 75, my 88. That's pretty much an example. So I, I published that in my book, Periodical Cicadas, The Plague and the Puzzle. And um, a lot of people didn't believe me. <laughs> it's like, what, what, why not? And so uh, uh, what you do is you wait. And we waited another 13 years in 2014. They came out with a vengeance. I was vindicated. I, was, I, felt, I felt so proud. <laughs> right. Anytime anyone calls you a liar, just wait 13 years and the results may change. That's right. And it's, you know, all, it's, it's like revenge is best served cold. <laughs> it's like we <laughs> or want 13, to. Or we, 13 years later. Wait, you got to wait and you know, be patient on this. this. This will all come out. But uh, uh, Indianapolis had a great emergence this year. Uh, I've. Uh, I've been in Indianapolis many, many times. I'm a, I'm a former president of the Indiana Academy of Science. So they were one of our sponsors for Cicada Safari. And uh, I hope that uh, you'll be looking forward to the emergence of Brood 14 in, in uh, 2025 in parts of Ohio. They're not going to be, and uh, in Indiana, they're not going to be as dense as Brood 10 was. And then uh, that same, uh, the year before in uh, 2014, extreme... Southwest Indiana, you'll have a small pocket of brood 19 cicadas, 13 years coming up in the state. And while we're based in Cincinnati, cicadas aren't just popping up here. They're popping up all across the country right now. And before I get to my next question, well, I want to, here's a follow-up question from Dana. She says, yes, I'm not a morning person. So the nymphs hatch, then fall to the ground after they hatch? Yes. The nymphs uh, hatch from the eggs. They little wriggle their way out of the uh, the egg nest. And then as soon as they get to the edge of the ranch, they just do a Hail Mary. They just drop. <laughs> I do teach them Mount St. Joe, so that's appropriate. <laughs> they drop to the ground, and as soon as they hit the ground, they, they want to get, uh, they'll land on grass or a weed. They will get to the, right down to the soil level and get between a crack and a plant as fast as they can because they're a tasty little morsel for uh, spiders and beetles and ants, and even some of the small, some birds will go after that. If they, if they are, happen to be there when they're emerging, they're just picking them off like crazy. We'll pivot to our next question from Joseph in Pennsylvania. He says, hey there, since the emergence is waning, my thoughts are shifting now to the annual, annual in quotes, cicada species here in Pennsylvania or the annual species prevalent in Brood 10 territory. How do their behaviors differ from the periodical cicadas? For instance, what triggers them to emerge, soil temperature, etc.? And what would the temperature be for the annual species to emerge? If that is even a factor at all in their emergence. And then he has a few other general questions, says, how long on average do they live as adults compared to the periodical species? And how long before the age, eggs eggs hatch and fall to the ground? It would be autumn in most cases with cooler nights, right? And thank you. It's been, experience, it's been a pleasure experiencing Brew 10 and following this podcast. Take care. Thank you so much, Joseph. As you also have noticed, uh, this is why I edit all of my I'll edit all the episodes before we go live because I am terrible at reading with a camera in front of me. Gene, let's go well, to the first question. Uh, thank you, Joseph. That was the, the great, great series of questions. The annual cicadas are, are kind of fun uh, in the sense that they start emerging. Uh, in This year, they started emerging in late June here in Ohio. Uh, and uh, uh, the they've not been studied like the periodical cicadas uh, have, so we don't have a lot of the temperature dynamics. But even though uh, we know that the periodical cicadas want 64 degrees Fahrenheit, as a soil temperature, they sometimes, we hit that temperature or got close to it and they still hadn't emerged because once they also need to be physiologically ready 
to to shed their skin, and that may play a part as well. Uh, this year, uh, we saw we heard our last periodical cicada here in Cincinnati on the second of July. And we had our first records coming in around the 25th of June. So there's a little bit of an overlap this year. And uh, Cicada Safari has already been converted for the annual cicadas. So if you go to the, the app, you'll see a whole bunch of pictures of the, of the, uh, uh, the green the cicadas. The adults live about the same length of time, about a month, uh, and they'll be emerging over the course of the, uh, the summers. There are several species. For example, here in Ohio, we've got 12 species in which two species, one, two of them have a separate subspecies as well. So there's 14 varieties of annual cicadas here in the state of Ohio, and they started emerging now. And we'll be hearing them through the summer into September, maybe even early October. Uh, they, uh, uh, they'll be emerging throughout the, the next couple months, uh, into, into August. And so those that come up in August will last through into September and maybe even the first part of October. And so we'll be, we'll be hearing cicada, the, uh, the annual cicadas, uh, for quite a while, but it's sort of a rolling emergence as you can, as you can imagine. Uh, the eggs will hatch, uh, about six to seven weeks, uh, after they've been laid. So that'll start and, and continue for a much longer period of time because of that, that rolling, that rolling emergence. And the, the thing about the annual cicada is we're not sure, based on which species you're talking about, how long ago those eggs were laid. The, the general feeling is it's between two and five years. There's been some people that, that suggest that other annual cicadas in other parts of the world have a seven-year life cycle. We've got some cicadas that have a four-year life cycle, an eight-year life cycle. There's one with an 11-year life cycle. Uh, and then there's a, the proto-periodicals, which they come out every year, but one of those emergence years, they come out in bigger numbers. And so it's, it's, and that may be a precursor to how our periodical cicadas emerged. They came out every year and then there was one year where there was larger numbers and, and that's, that's the, pro, the precursor steps or the ancestral steps that were taken. This next question comes from Yvonne. I believe there's a very specific episode in mind when uh, she came up with these questions. She says here, just listen to episodes seven and eight. I was wondering if males mate with more than one female, and how soon after do they die? Are there more females than males, or are they about equal? If neither gets to mate, how soon do they die? I wonder if it's similar to some things I've seen about salmon mating and dying soon after. Gene, when do they die after they mate? <laughs> that's, that's a great question. Uh, the uh, sex ratio is about 50-50. Uh, it doesn't start out that way. The first cicadas to emerge from the soil are predominantly male, uh, about 70-some percent uh, will come out. That's only for about three, four days, and then they'll even out, and then more females will start coming out. And then eventually, if you overlook the, ov- uh, the overall numbers, it's 50-50 sex ratio. Um, as far as mating frequency... Uh, that has been observed and marked, and you can mark the adults and watch this. Apparently, about eight, the numbers look like 85% of the males will only mate once. Uh, the, uh, they, uh, they do not, unlike mammals, do not continue to produce more sperm. They have a quantified amount of sperm. So once that is exhausted, they're exhausted. All right, Pete, basically. <laughs> and uh, uh, 10% will mate uh, twice, and 5% will mate three times. And so that's the overall frequency, but that's enough to take care of those additional females that emerged after that initial emergence of more males in the first few days. And that's rather important because if males can mate more than, uh, more than once, so this is even a small frequency, those early males that come up, they can help satiate the predators first. And that's, that's beneficial for the whole brood. Mm-hmm. Of course, they are overachievers, so if it's any only one-time maters here, 
they're not showing off. It's just how they do things. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Micah from Indianapolis who says the angle cicadas buzzing sounds different and is later. Their head size is bigger and colors are different. That is true, right? That is very true. In fact, it's really kind of cool. Uh, if you go to uh, cicadamania.com, run by my good friend Dan Muzgay, uh, he, uh, uh, he's got, uh, you can look up the, under the, the heading species, click there, and you can, there's a little pull-down menu that are, are menu that has every state. And you click on that, and it will show you photographs of every annual cicada species and, and periodical species uh, that occurs in that state, along with the recording of the calls. And so the calls are very different. Uh, we, we had, of course, our, our uh, that call that we had for the uh, the septendecim that occurred in Route 10 and the uh, the shh call for the Cassini, for example, or the of the uh, uh, septendecula. But a lot of the annual cicadas will have more like a so it gets, and again, there's, there are fewer of them. Uh, but they are quite loud in comparison uh, uh, to uh, the uh, the periodicals. Yeah, I don't believe I've. Uh, of course, growing up in West Kentucky, there are, there probably are periodicals, periodical cicadas I'm unaware of. But I always hear the same annual cicadas every year, and it's mm-hmm. just so weird. Kind of growing up with that for so long, and then this year I move up here, and it's just this complete change in the sound. Like um, like. You know, like obviously, you've been observing these things for a long time. So, you picking out is picking out the sounds easier for you as you know as time has gone on, or are you still like uh, it might be? Are there like are there very distinct differences between all the different sounds they make? There are distinct differences, uh, although I've personally have, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm focused on periodical cicadas. I don't do a lot of work with the annual cicadas, although I'm, because they're cicadas, I follow them and listen. They're quite distinct. And you can, uh, if you listen to the different calls, you can tell the swamp cicada, for example, from uh, the the other cicadas that will be merging in your area. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, where I was heading with this, uh, the the calls are, uh, thing, uh, the major difference that we've seen is that the annual cicadas come out in these smaller numbers, and uh, uh, they start coming out now, and they're called annual cicadas. They're also called dog day cicadas because these are the dog days of summer. It's so hot that you know, dogs are exhausted. <laughs> and then they continue to come out, and when they start coming out in late August and September, that's why they were called harvest flies because when they came out then, that was harvest time. Mm. And so there's dog day cicadas, harvest flies. Harvest flies was the name uh, quite commonly used for cicadas at the end of the 19th century. Well, this uh, next, uh, this is not a question that comes to us. This is from Jill in Arlington, Tennessee. This is a comment she had about our podcast, so we can pat ourselves on the back real quick. She says right here, thank you so much for putting the specific podcast together. What your team and Dr. Gene Kritzky have put together is reporting that is highly learning accessible to the general public. And, you know, example, like non-entomologists or, or stupid journalists like me here at Cincinnati Public Radio. And even better, you've offered a holistically informative series about the cicada. This series doesn't prevent fluff and fat information about an insect it really delves into here's what we know today and what we're still trying to understand what it's taught us why does cicada matters how it serves the larger ecosystem i could keep going you've really pulled listeners like me into a deeper appreciation appreciation of this oftentimes front yard backyard denizen great work and i look forward to the remainder of this series and to future podcasts you produce uh well you'll be hearing uh future episodes maybe in the next 17 years if everything goes right here um yeah i mean it's interesting like um what Jill's noted here, I, I mean, when I when I started this podcast, I had zero idea about anything relating to cicadas, and it's interesting, you know, just like this, um, just this one one insect highlights how much um, 
how 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 important you, you know one one creature can impact an entire ecosystem um we uh have you have you been using um the cicada to like to teach others like hey like you know just because it's just just taking out one insect could impact an entire civilization in, in some regards right well we, i i use a lot of insect species to illustrate uh, uh the importance of insects and biodiversity in particular but the cicadas because people get really focused on them <laughs> in the years they come out. Uh, for example, Brood 13 is going to emerge in 2024 in uh, Chicago. And I'm already getting calls from my my, my colleagues in Chicago and uh, what we're going to be doing with, as that emerges. So it's uh, it, it's it's geographically, geographically localized, but yet when it does come, especially now with the internet and more news services out there, people just really just, catch on. And I never dreamed, for example, that, uh, Cicada Safari had 197,000 downloads. That's a lot of people. And, <laughs> and how many people submitted photos this year? Cause this was the large, I mean, cause we, the, uh, I, the number right now, oh, there are over 600,000 photographs and videos that were submitted. And there's some people, for example, submitted thousands from their yard and that, but, and they did it over the course of the entire emergency. And that was helpful because it's, now we've got a, a, a photo record of what happened in one location. And we've got thousands of people that sent in just one or two or three, uh, to help us. And, uh, uh it, it, and we have, uh, 28,000 total uh, videos for the, about 23,000 or so actually have audio calls. So we know what species we're mating and it's, a uh, uh, it's, it's quite a, it's quite a record. And now I'm dealing with all this data, uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, the limitation I had, and maybe some listeners might uh, have volunteers some help, but uh, I've always done this mapping in, in, with Google Maps, and uh, <laughs> they'll, the maximum is 100,000 dots, <laughs> and I've got half a million. Yeah. <laughs> so so we're going to be going through and uh, looking, and, and I've, I'm working on Excel right now to uh, in Excel to look at all the dots that came from within the same area so I can, you know, separate those, that's going to get us down probably around to 250, 300,000, but yeah. that's still a lot of dots. Yeah. Excel documents like literally like make me sick. Like when I look at them, like I, I literally just look at them and just, just back away immediately. I can't imagine even looking at all those little tiny dots on Google maps either that I don't envy you. That's what, that's what I'm trying to say here. <laughs> this next question comes to us from Carolyn in the Washington DC area. She says here, hi, Corey and Jean, I'm enjoying the podcast. If a tree falls down in a storm during the middle of the cicada life underground, if they survive the tree removal and or uprooting, do they burrow over to the next nearby tree or die from a lack of tree root feeding? Well, what we know right now, it looks like that if the tree should die or be cut down or is uprooted, uh, most likely the cicadas will die. And I've got a couple of examples I've monitored. There was a crabapple tree that was uh, taken down in the middle of brood 22. And I went back and visited it about five years later and not a single cicada emerged anywhere around that spot. Mm. They tend only to move about a yard underground during those uh, 13 or 17 years. And if they should head in the wrong direction and not run into a tree root, they will starve to death. And if you look at the numbers that actually come out of the ground compared to the number of eggs that were laid, it suggests an extremely high mortality uh, during that time from egg laying to the actual emergence. So it's uh, they've dying out, desiccating in the tree before they hatch, being eaten before they get underground, and then all the things that might happen to them from uh, going the wrong direction, not finding a root, uh, to being eaten by a mole, <laughs> to uh, uh, other events that might happen, being too close to the surface of the hard freeze. Mm. Uh, it's a uh, there's I, all sorts of things that we have to, to I don't ponder. remember if we, if we, 
talked about this specifically during a podcast or if we were doing a conversation before, but I know we brought like a scenario like, um, say they, um, there's like a nice park there and then someone buys it and converts into a parking lot um, and they pave over it. Like what in those situations, is it just game over for the cicadas in that instance? Well, we've, we've had examples where people have put in like sidewalks, mm. but they didn't kill any trees per se. And what you see is all these, and I've, I've seen this at, the, at, at Mount St. Joe, uh, hundreds of little emergence holes parallel the edge of the sidewalk. And if you should lift that up, you can actually see underground all these tunnels sort of moving just under the cement and then finally getting, getting out. And they'll, they'll, I've seen, uh, uh, burrows under a slab, uh, two and a half feet in length as they're just trying desperately to get out of there so they can shed their skin. Uh, but, uh, if they're, if the area is clear cut, uh, everything's removed and then paved over whatever the, those, there'll be nothing, those cicadas will die when the trees are, are cut. And remember, if you're watching right now, feel free to submit any questions you have for us about the Brood 10 Cicada podcast. This question comes to us from Becky, uh, who just posted this on our Facebook Live. She says, how many people are helping with your data? Are they students, other scientists, staff, volunteers, etc.? Because, I mean, we're talking about, like, this year you got over 600,000 photos submitted. Um, so who who is helping, like... Well, divide all that up. The exciting thing is we've already reviewed all the photos. Oh, there you so go. we you know, we don't we don't we don't mess around. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, we had a, a wonderful group of people that helped. Uh, Twenty five people helped, including uh, uh, some of my students, uh, some of our graduates. Uh, we had students uh, from uh, uh, Saint Vincent College uh, assist in our analysis. Uh, one of my one of my former students is a professor there in biology, also an entomologist. Uh, we had the help of a number of colleagues from the University of Maryland. Uh, some grad students as well as some uh, some faculty. Uh, we had uh, uh, students in our natural language processing program. Uh, the natural language processing, if you've ever heard of it before, it's a new field in computer science, and uh, the Mount's got a program in that. And uh, uh, if you wonder what it is, it's 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 using computers to analyze non numerical data. So if you've ever used Siri, that's NLP. And uh, as part of the uh, uh, the work on that, they helped us uh, uh, by learning how to identify cicadas. I did training sessions and they helped out. Uh, I have to have a shout out to uh, my colleague at Mount St. Joe, uh, uh, Chad Montag. He a- actually looked at and verified over 75,000 photographs. I mean, he was, he's a champ. He was <laughs> so, just clicking through that computer. Uh, he was, he, 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 he thoroughly enjoyed this and, and, uh, uh, just, it was just extremely helpful. And, uh, uh, he was, uh, uh, focused and, uh, without help of, from Chad and my students and our colleagues, uh, around the country, uh, we would not have been able to keep up. And we, and the fact that we kept up, uh, when, and there was one day that we were about <laughs> 70,000 photos behind, and uh, we brought in more troops uh, uh, to help, and uh, we got that down pretty quickly. And uh, uh, we were we were able to handle between fifteen and twenty thousand photos a day, and so uh, that was very important because it helped us uh, uh, keep on top of that. Uh, the biggest issue we had uh, was as they were coming in, the dots on the map were becoming more prevalent, and it was slowing the app down. Mm. Uh, did we never, uh, thank goodness, I can say this on Lockwood. Our, for our uh, shout out for our IT team at uh, at Mount Saint Joe, uh, we didn't crash, and we had one instance where eight thousand people were using the app at the exact same time. But in order to keep keep it up. Uh, optimized for speed, we had to cluster. And so we clustered, uh, in many cases, we're only showing the last 40,000 images 
that that were coming in. Uh, but that was quite useful because it shows pe- people were asking, well, where are they coming out now? They wanted to go and find them. And if you had all these dots that from the older, the emergencies in, in May, and they were calling me in, in uh, late June, uh, that was helpful for those individuals who wanted to uh, to uh, see where cicadas were at that time. And what's the next emergence you, you guys are looking at with your research? The next emergence, well, first of all, there's no emergence next year. Oh. No Brood 11. That one went extinct in 1954, as mm. I mentioned earlier on the podcast. There's never been a Brood 12. Uh, we have a Brood 13 coming out in northern uh, Illinois and southern Wisconsin and extreme eastern Iowa. But one of the wild thing happening is that uh, is the uh, co-emergence in 2024 with brood 19, a 13-year cicada. And that's going to occur in central Illinois, south, almost the entire three quarters of, uh, uh, except for the far northwestern portion of uh, uh, Missouri. It's going to be all throughout all Missouri into northern Arkansas. A little bit, a couple spots real in southwest, southeastern Oklahoma might get some. There might be a, uh, uh, some emerges right along the coast of the border of uh, northeastern Texas. But then into uh, Louisiana and Mississippi and Alabama, northern Georgia, uh, western South Carolina, throughout central uh, North Carolina, pockets up in, uh, in Virginia. But the exciting thing is, there's going to be an overlap between 13 and 19 in central Illinois. Mm. And so that's what we're excited about. It's almost see. like a, a solar eclipse, except in this case, it's a bunch of bugs happening at the same yes. time. And the last, and the, these co-emergences between two specific broods, between 13 and brood 13, which is a 17-year skater, and brood 19, which is a 13-year skater, that happens only once every 221 years. Does that, so th- does that present the, um, the possibility of... of all of them breeding together and maybe creating a new. Well, that's one of the things that we, we, we've been concerned about that and thought about that. And, uh, uh, uh I've even published that if that should happen. Uh, but we now know from what happened the last time when I believe it was brood, uh, uh brood three emerged with, uh, uh, with brood 19 several years ago. And, uh, when that happened, the 13 year cicadas actually came out about a week before the 17 year cicadas. And so that difference in time, precluded a lot of early, uh, uh, mating and, uh, but we, we need to get more boots on the ground and, and more observations in these overlap areas. So we're talking about how we can monitor what's going to happen in 2024, mm-hmm. but I have a two, I have two years off now. Yeah. Great. Well, of course, in, with that two year gap, remember to download a Cicada Safari app, uh, just in case you somehow are in the area of the, uh, the co-emergence in 2024. And you can use the, the Cicada Safari app to actually report uh, annual cicadas if you want as well. Right. Uh, we've already started getting re- reports. Uh, it's already been, all the images have been changed. The stories have been changed uh, so that pe- if people who want to uh, uh, follow the annual cicadas, because you know what? It's really hard, Corey. How can you get too many cicadas? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm just fortunate enough I don't have to go through all of that data because if I looked at that Excel doc for at least a couple of minutes, I would just throw up. So I don't envy you there, but uh, it's never too many, I'd assume, well, right? I mean, for example, I've heard uh, on our fun drives for uh, 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 VXU uh, the uh, that there's about a quarter million people who listen to the station every week. Is that about the general numbers? I uh, think somewhere around there. I think that I think that's accurate. And we had just slightly fewer than that send us uh, download Cicada Safari. So it's uh, we're, we're you're ahead of us. So uh, uh, maybe the <laughs> uh, depending on how depending on how many more podcasts are get made by this, we might get blown out of the water. If there you go. <laughs> Thank you. We'll pick a new bug. 
<laughs> so we did talk um, during the podcast about some of the, re- of course, obviously the research you've done, but all of the people that came before you. And this uh, next question comes to us from Mark. Mark with a C says, hey, folks, would it be great if y'all highlighted the remarkable work of Benjamin Banneker at some point in regards to cicada research? Um, Benjamin Banneker, I believe, was an African-American uh, who mm-hmm. was who made made a lot of strides in, in research of cicadas. Uh, so he, could you go into... Yeah, see, uh, he was a, a very interesting individual. Uh, he was uh, born free. His mother was, uh, was a freed slave. His father was from the Caribbean. And uh, uh, he experienced the 1749 emergence of Brood 10. Uh, at that time in his notes, uh, he basically tried to step on everyone he could because he thought they were the locusts of the Bible <laughs> and realized that wasn't possible. He then experienced the 1766 emergence and the 1783. And by the time of 1783, he had taught himself mathematics. He uh, uh, was able to uh, uh, become, he was a gifted mathematician, taught himself mathematics to the point where he could actually calculate when the next eclipse would occur. Uh, he was uh, apparently involved with this uh, surveying of the boundaries for the Wash- for Washington D.C., our new capital, uh, that was being uh, uh, developed at the time. And in the year uh, 1800, he wrote all this down in a page in his one of his notebooks. And he said, "This year, 1800, they're coming out again." He wrote this and before they'd started emerging, and noted. And it's not surprising because he was interested in mathematics that they come out with 17 years and 17 is a prime number. That seemed to really uh, uh, get him. The uh, the thing that, uh, and of course, now we, by that time, unfortunately, because he didn't publish that, it didn't have an impact on the literature. Although we do, uh, the first uh, paper published that uh, verified a 17-year life cycle was uh, by Pear Calm in 1756. But what at the very end of, of this page that uh, Benneker wrote in his notebooks, he talks about the uh, the uh, that that during the emergence uh, sometimes their their tail falls off, and they fly. And it doesn't seem to cause any problem. They sing and they fly and, and what have you. And the the abdomen tip of the abdomen falling off is a manifestation of the cicada fungus. And so his observation he did not know it was the fungus that was doing that but his observation was the first documentation we have that that fungus was prevalent in periodical cicadas at that time and he died in 1804 unfortunately while he was being buried apparently somebody torched his cabin and all of his notebooks were lost they're probably we probably you know judging from the one notebook that we have that he had lent somebody if we had all those books, we think we would have probably found more about what the, this mind was was uh, was doing and and, and observing. Uh, but uh, uh, but fortunately, that one book that uh, uh, survived that, that survived that fire uh, is, uh, gave us an indication of this individual. Obviously, a brilliant individual who could. Uh, uh, I remember taking math classes in college, <laughs> and to self teach yourself. That's. Yeah, that that's that's amazing. Yeah, and and I, I remember my experience in math class as well. I'll just say that's what led me to become a journalist. Um, <laughs> well, I was say one of the uh, Benneker published, uh, I believe it was six or seven almanacs. Unfortunately, none of them were during cicada years for Brood Ten, so he doesn't mention the cicadas in the uh, in the almanacs. But if I'm sure that if that had come out, uh, if the cicadas were going to emerge during one of the years that he published this almanac, uh, there would have been a section on cicadas because most of the almanacs had that. And we talk about this, just this one book that fortunately was, was left behind for future researchers. And, and, you know, just, you're just one of 
tons of, of researchers uh, dedicating their lives to, to cicadas. What's it like, you know, and, and all of the research obviously builds on top of itself over and over and over. So, like, when you're looking at research that has, you know, built itself over and over, a bunch over time, wh- how do you find, like, new avenues to pursue and how do you find, like, new things that maybe past researchers haven't looked at that you believe need to be? Oh, it's, uh, that's, that's the fun thing about science. Uh, the first step of the scientific method is observation. And it's just being inquisitive, looking at things. Uh, it's also nice to be a little weird. <laughs> and that means you're going to look at things from a different perspective. You might ask a unique question. Uh, but uh, I do feel a very sense, as you know, I'm, as I said in one of the uh, podcasts, I'm a frustrated historian. And I really do feel that I'm following in the footsteps of people who've been doing this. I, you know, I look back at the people that I was in grad school with, uh, Monty Lloyd and Hank Dibus and uh, Frank Young and Lou Standard. And uh, th- these guys were the greats who were publishing in the 50s and the 60s and in the early 70s. And then before them, uh, you had uh, 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 James uh, Hislop, uh, who coordinated and collected all the USD data. Uh, and then before him was Marlott. And before Marlott was Riley. And before Riley was, ben, uh, was uh, Gideon... Uh, uh, Smith. And before Gideon Smith, you know, we're looking at uh, Linnaeus and uh, we're looking at Pear Column. So it's almost like a lineage that I, that I follow uh, of, of whose work uh, that we're building on. And uh, I really get a sense of that. Uh, it's, uh, again, with periodical scales, because of the 17-year life cycle, you're always going back centuries. And so people will be changing. But uh, that's uh, and that even came out during one of the uh, uh, during the this year's emergence. Uh, case in point, uh, uh, I had an interview with the Washington Post about uh, uh, Gideon Smith and mentioned that I that we don't know where his manuscript is. I don't have we don't even have a photograph. And a student from uh, 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 Goucher College in in Baltimore, uh, while working in the library as an undergraduate, helped collate and and. Uh, um, record a bunch of papers that were donated to the library, which turned out to be Gideon Smith's great granddaughter, her papers. And in that file, there is a photograph of Gideon Smith. So we now know what he looks like. <laughs> and does he look like you? Cause that might answer some questions. I was <laughs> no, <laughs> he, uh, it was sort of interesting uh, to date the photograph. There's no date on it. Although uh, uh, there was an address for the photographer and I was able to use that uh, to date a window of a bracket in the time, but, uh, I was actually having to research, uh, dress during the 1850s and 1860s in the U S to sort of fuse by the style of clothes he was wearing. And it, the stuff he was wearing was very similar to Abraham Lincoln around 1860. Uh, and indeed the, uh, when I, when I finally got to see the reverse of the photograph and it had the name of the photographer and his address, I was able to verify he didn't move to that address until 1859. And Smith died in 1867. So it was during those two years, those blocks, but he was clearly quite uh, still uh, healthy at the time of the photograph. And he, uh, Smith died uh, uh, after a long illness. So it, I'd say it's probably between 1859 and probably 1863, 64. But that explained why the clothing looked quite similar to Abraham Lincoln's. I never thought I'd be researching Victorian dress <laughs> to uh, figure out how to date a, a cicada photo i know that we're sort of having like an 80s and 90s like fashion revival i wonder when we're, when we're ever going to get the 1860s fashion revival here in the states this uh wow. <laughs> it's not the mo- it, it, 
It only works for some people. I will, I'll, I'll say that much. I believe this right here may be our last question. It comes from Maxwell in Highland County, Ohio. He says, hey, a couple fields down, I saw literally thousands of chimneys in just a handful of acres. It was otherworldly, and I wish I had a chance to take a picture for the app. When I wanted to stop the next day, it had been disked, and that was that. The question is, in the fields, when they make chimneys, when the ground gets disked, are they close enough to the surface at that point, days after they made it, if they're still in there, to get wiped out by the soil preparation? Well, assuming that uh, now, if this is an open field with not, not, not any trees around there, that wouldn't be cicadas then. But if they were close, I also received some photographs from uh, north of Cincinnati where there were literally hundreds of cicadas in, a, in an area, a cicada tunnel, uh, turrets, the chimneys. Uh, amazing. Uh, in many cases, the the uh, cicadas, uh, once they're when they build that chimney, they're going to be up at the top because it's raining. And it's really wet. As that rain stops, which they would have done, they wouldn't be out disking the field or turning over the soil. Uh, they will drop back down in their tunnel, which could be as deep as, as about eighty inches, and then they'll actually they'll they'll plug it up again with more more soil. So it depends on how deep they go with the, the with the turning over of the soil. But if it's in a farming area uh, and not uh, and and cleared of trees, then uh, it's possible that there could have been other things making. Uh, uh, making those chimneys, uh, crayfish or mud mud bugs, as they're called sometimes, make a much larger chimney than we see with cicadas. And uh, I remember walking at the front old uh, uh, nature preserve uh, just as the cicadas were emerging, and uh, we found chimneys, uh, but also found some mud bug chimneys, and it was amazing the size difference. You know, the, the the chimneys for the cicadas are about the size, a little bit bigger than your thumb. These things are like. F- four or five inches in diameter and a big mud pile up with a big hole in the top of it. Uh, so it's kind of, kind of fun, but, uh, those kinds of, uh, behavioral things are, are really one of the nice things about going out and just wandering, mm-hmm. wandering the woods. It's crazy how much, you know, like, um, like little details like that, you know, we, we missed in, in our, in our podcast, even though there was so much that, you know, we, we still ended up covering during the whole time. I mean, you know, when it comes to like how much, how much uh, there is to, to know about cicadas? How much? How much did we tackle during our podcast? Did we just merely scratch the surface, and there's a lot more underneath, or did we? Well, we we cover the highlights. Yeah, you know, we get we did the cliff notes, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, we could you know we could have focused in on some of the weird things that's happened during different emergencies or different years and so on. Uh, and we we also focused on brood ten. Uh, there are some unique things going on. So, for example, in the, in uh, New York and Long Island, there sometimes the, the you know one time there were six broods there at one time. Uh, we we've uh, uh, seen t- you know areas where you might find uh, uh, interactions of overlapping broods. For example, like we have here in in East Central Cincinnati. So uh, there are some interesting things that can you can get into. But uh, now you're really getting you're getting focused <laughs> on on some. Uh, uh, Stuff that really makes it, it's of interest to us uh, that are those of us that, that uh, like to get our hands dirty with cicadas. But uh, for people that just are experiencing brood tan, it wouldn't have been as as much fun, right? And and you know, I mean, even though we only talked, you know, touched on just one one brood and this this one emergence, it still is quite quite an experience, at least for me, mm-hmm. learning wise. I hope it was an experience for everyone else that's been listening to this podcast the entire time. I mean, it was. Uh, it's just incredible, just again, like how much, how much just one creature can affect an entire, um, entire, um, you know, ecosystem. And then of course, and then look at all the cultural impacts it has mm-hmm. as well. I mean, how many t- cicada t-shirts do we see around 
city. Uh, how many cicada pizza ads did we see around oh, town? Yeah. Cicada cookies. Cicada uh, cookies. Bon Bonnery did a great, uh, <laughs> donated to the university a, a enormous box of, uh, boxes of, of these wonderful cookies. And, uh, uh again, it's, uh, the culinary, the, the back in 2004, graders had a, a cicada, uh, confectionery. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> Uh, the creative minds. And even uh, at the university you teach at, Mount St. Joseph University, they converted their mascot into the cicadas. That's correct, right? For, for, for a time on, on April Fool's Day. And, uh, <laughs> although they also uh, plastered our buildings with cicada, uh, cicadas, uh, the, uh, uh, one that some that were like five feet large, but uh, long, but that we had uh, a couple uh, 10 by five foot cicadas on the side of the uh, auditorium in front of the administration building on the library and things. And we had a couple up on the, on the roof. And of course, we spent plenty of time together to, to discussing a podcast and recording the podcast. Uh, of course, I want to give thanks to all of the people that have been listening to us the entire time. Uh, have been submitting us questions. You guys have really um, gotten, you know, really have uh, helped us uh, as far as uh, structuring our episodes and whatnot, especially to cater to you guys. We also have one more question here from Micah, the little little scientist we have here. How can we help the cicadas so they don't go extinct like Brood 11? Oh, Mike, that's a, a wonderful question. I'm glad you asked that. Uh, what we need to do is plant trees. And uh, we want to plant uh, deciduous trees, trees that drop their leaves in the winter. And, uh, and if we did this, you know, uh, for example, if we planted uh, nice trees on the south side of our houses, uh, the summer, the shade provided would actually lower our, our cooling bills and they drop their leaves in the winter. So the sun that does hit the house in the winter helps lower your heating bills. So that's beneficial. But uh, you want to plant trees within a half a mile, if you can, of where the cicadas emerge and they'll find it. Uh, there is that cliche. If you plant it, they will come. <laughs> And I want to thank Micah for all of the questions you've submitted during our live stream. Uh, it's really great that, you know, this has been such a, a learning experience for, for so many people involved because, um, you know, every year you just think, I mean, like, I mean, I, as me growing up, I never dealt with a massive emergence like this. Mm -hmm. I was just like, oh man, there's those pesky things like at the walnut tree outside my house, yeah. just like screaming all day and day and just learning how much of an impact they have on our lives Cool, yeah. Well, it's uh, for Micah, uh, if you have an interest in insects, uh, consider a career in entomology. Uh, the, the insects are amazing. You know, you've, you've heard the question that uh, approximately one out of every three bites of food you take required an insect to pollinate that food. Uh, more people die of insect-borne diseases. It's one of the major killers in the world. If you want to stop human suffering, be an entomologist. We can stop world hunger by controlling three stored grain pests. So if you want to help humankind and feed the world, become an entomologist. If you want to help us uh, protect our structures, we spend more money on, on uh, termite damage than we do on hurricanes in this country per year. Be an entomologist. Uh, there's uh, opportunities uh, for both uh, uh, men and women in that, in that field. And our, our current president, uh, incoming president of the uh, Entomological Society of America, uh, uh, Dr. Ware at the American Museum in New York, is uh, uh, one of our, uh, we, 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 uh, is a gifted uh, entomologist studying insect evolution and the relationships of the, uh, uh, the, of, uh, the insect orders to each other. Uh, there's insects, uh, we've entomophagy. Eating insects—that's become a major discussion. I, I can't go; they can't go a, a, a week now without seeing a story about entomophagy. Uh, we uh, we're finding insects are important for research. Fundamentally, what we know about genetics comes from the study of fruit flies and fruit fly genetics. Uh, so it it doesn't stop. And so, if you uh, have an interest in insects, uh, keep observing, keep watching, 
keep, uh, uh, I no longer collect as much as I used to because I, I, I love these things so much, but you could take photographs and record and do photograph vouchers, both, uh, with Cicada Safari or iNaturalist and other, other apps like that. So, uh, uh there's opportunities, uh, for a, a rewarding career, uh, in, uh, in entomology yeah, and, for those who I love this. And it's great that Mike is already getting like ahead of the curve. He's only seven years old and mm-hmm. you know, learning so much. I'm 24, so I'm, I'm well past my prime. So I don't think a entomology career will be, be in my cards. I think, uh, I think I'm, I'm cool with the job I have now though. So I think we'll be all <laughs> right. Um, again, I want to thank um, all of the people that have been submitting us questions. All the people have been listening and sharing the podcast. Um, it's been a really great experience. You know, me, especially, you know, moving, here uh, to Cincinnati from Southwest Kentucky, it's kind of crazy to to um, be just just jump into something and be a part of it and have kind of like this community experience with everyone. We're all learning about the same things and um, all sharing our enjoyment in, in such a, a niche little topic. Um, and you can say that definitely for the uh, you know last forty five years of, of your career. I mean, mm-hmm. just how much people get excited and connect with these sort of things. So it's great that we were both able to share and. And Definitely. that experience. Um, remember, uh, you do, let's, uh, you plug the podcast, yeah, not the podcast. If you want to plug the podcast, we can do that as well. But uh, plug the Cicada Safari app, telling all the different, um, the great, um, all the ways you can connect with people through that and um, how much I'll age your uh, research going forward. Well, the Cicada Safari app, of course, uh, will be uh, up. It's right now ready for the annual cicadas. So we're getting a photograph. Last year, we had about 700 uh, annual cicadas reported from not only the United States, but Thailand, South Africa, Australia. Uh, there's a, a, it's a nice way to learn more about cicadas and go out in, in the field. Uh, you can uh, also uh, uh, look forward to, and uh, even though if you live here in Cincinnati or Indianapolis, Micah, you can wait and go out and dig up the cicadas. I can't wait. So I usually dig them up every year to see how they're doing. I don't dig up a lot of them, but you can go out into the yard, look in the trees. Where do you see the egg nest? Where did you see the flagging? Dig down about, uh, oh, I'd say eight to 12 inches in the summer, and you will find the minuscule little two and three and third and fourth instars. So you can visit Brood 10 throughout the emergence if you just know where to look. (laughs) Uh, Of course, I want to give, again, a special thanks to our cicada expert, let me get your official title up here, the Dean of Behavioral and Natural Sciences, as well as a professor in the Department of Biology at Mount St. Joseph University here in Cincinnati, and PhD of Entomology, Dr. Gene Critzy. I've been your host, WVXU reporter Corey Sharper. This podcast was produced by the always brooding, always screaming Josh Elstrow, and this live stream has been aided in part with Ronnie Salerno, our social media coordinator here at WVXU. Um, thank you so much for joining us, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Um, this is Corey Sharper signing off. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.